Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Judges, chapter 4. Judges, chapter 4, hear now the word of the Lord. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Yabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had nine hundred chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for twenty years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Yabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and ten thousand men went at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zaanayim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up for this day, this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the, the Kenite, for there was peace between Yabin, the king of Hatzor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Yabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Yabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Yabin, king of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. 
For the next two weeks, we'll be looking at the, the same story from two perspectives. Uh, this week is the, the, the prose story of Deborah, Deborah and Barak, and next week we'll have a, a special guest preacher, and then the week after that, we'll hear how the Song of Deborah retells the story. Uh, there's, there's lots of instances in the scriptures where the, where the Psalms retell biblical stories, but in the prose accounts, the, in the historical books, as it were, the prophetic books, there are, there are fewer of these parallel accounts where you get the one in prose and the other in poetry. Uh, really, Exodus 14 and 15 is the main other example. And, and in both cases, the, the poetic version and the prose version give a, a sort of additional information. Uh, we'll see next time. The, the poetic account doesn't really provide a chronological narrative of the events. It's celebrating God's triumph. Uh, quite frankly, if all we had was the song, we might not fully understand the story. But at the same time, the author of Judges assumes that you know the song and leaves out kind of the key details because he assumes you know them, because you know the song. So tonight, I'm not going to mention what the key details are. Now, we'll sing them in the Song of Deborah afterwards, so you'll get it. But, uh, but I, won't, I won't mention what it is, because that's actually the way the text gives it to us. They'll, they'll come out in the song, and you'll be like, oh, that's how God did it. But really, the prose accounts are designed to inform and instruct, and the poetry is designed to celebrate and commemorate. So we start with a with the standard introduction. The, the people did what was evil in God's sight. This is, as we've seen from chapter three, this is the pattern this, uh, over and over again, as we saw in chapter two. This, there's a there's a, a literary narrative, a literary pattern that the book of Judges will use. But as we'll keep seeing, this literary pattern will keep disintegrating, even as Israel is disintegrating. And we're told that this happened after Ehud died. The reference to Ehud wants us, shows us we should see a connection between these two stories. There's, there's something going on here connecting us to Ehud. Uh, it's also worth noting geographically Ehud and, uh, is, is operating in the south of Israel uh, by Jericho, by the, the, the Dead Sea, whereas, uh, whereas Deborah and Barak are far in the far north. Mount Tabor is in the far north of Israel. So these are... In one sense, these are these are stories that are happening. Uh, it could it could be because it says this is happening after the death of Ehud. Well, after the death of Ehud, we were told that the land had peace for 80 years. That means that in the south they had peace for 80 years. So this could be happening during that 80 years of peace in the south because none of this affects the southern tribes. All of this affects the northern tribes. So. That's where some of these stories, if you, if you try to sort of do the chronology of them, the numbers don't always add up. But that's because a lot of these overlap. They have peace in the south, but Yabin is way in the far north, and he's afflicting the northern tribes. Now, Yabin is an interesting character, uh, partly because we heard in Joshua 11 how Joshua had defeated Yabin of Hatzor and burned his city to the ground. Now we're at least 100 years later. And we're told that Yabin, king of Canaan, reigned in Hatzor. Now, part of this is, Yabin is a dynastic name. So it would be like saying Caesar. Well, which Caesar? There are lots of Caesars. So this is where the Yabin seems to be the dynastic name of the lords of Hatzor. Uh, 
Now, the, the challenge that we, what we might face is that Hatzor was raised to the ground by Joshua, and the archaeological record supports a 13th century destruction. There are no inhabitants of, of Hatzor at this time in history. Uh, so what's Yabin of Hatzor doing? Well, Yabin is the dynastic name. It's like saying, you know, Caesar, who is the emperor of Rome. Well, how often did Caesar actually live in Rome? Many of the Caesars didn't lived in Milan or in, later in Constantinople. They're still the emperor of Rome. And so the fact that he's the king, the lord, the reigning in Hazor, just means this is, this is the Yabin of Hazor. Whether Hazor is actually a functioning city at the time is beside the point. So Joshua destroyed the city of Hatzor in his day. Some member of the family escaped and has set himself up as the new Yabin of Hatzor and probably intends to rebuild Hatzor. And to do this, he hires a mercenary general, Sisera, and gave him the lordship of Harosheth Hagoyim, which means the forest of the nations. Sisera has 900 chariots of iron. Uh, this is the beginning of what's sometimes called the Iron Age. And so you start to get these iron chariots, which are devastating weapons in the open, in the open country. Uh, in the open country, if, if you're out in the fields, if you're, if, yeah, the, the, these, these, they have, they have basically uh, sharp blades as, it, as the chariot comes through between the horse trampling you, the chariot cutting you down, and the, 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 the javelins and the, uh, the, 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 the chariot's tears would be throwing at you. These are devastating weapons. They're like the tanks of the ancient world, and there's no way infantry can stand up against these chariots. So, but a chariot-based army would not spend much time in the hill country. So it's not surprising to find a judge holding court in the hill country of Ephraim, because once you get up in the hills, char- chariots aren't very useful anymore. And so this is the place where in the structure of Judges 2, 11 to 23, we would expect to hear, and the Lord raised up a deliverer. But as we said, this, the pattern is beginning to disintegrate, even as Israel is turning away from the pattern of the obedience of Joshua, so also the, the narrative itself is beginning to crumble. So we don't hear the words, and the Lord raised up a deliverer, but we do hear how God raised up a deliverer. And we're told that, you know, it, it, we're, that now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot, was judging Israel at that time. Barak does not appear until verse 6. God does not call Barak directly, as he will with Gideon, nor does the Spirit of the Lord come upon him, as it did upon Othniel. No, God calls Barak through Deborah, through the prophetess. Judges has a a lot more women in it than most of Old Testament history. We've already met Othniel's wife, Aksa, who had no difficulty insisting that her father give her springs of water. And here, Deborah is introduced in a manner that draws attention to her gender. Uh, Deborah, a woman's name from the ah ending, and she's a prophetess, and she's the wife of Lapidot. Three feminine gender markers launch this section. Now, she's the only prophet named in the book of Judges. Not until Samuel will another prophet arise. And she's the wife of of Lapidot, which means torch or fiery one. Uh, 
some have pointed out that Barak means lightning, so there's at least some sort of play on words, uh, and and that's that that basically yeah she's she's the wife of the fiery one, and then she calls lightning to uh, be the deliverer. And she sat under a palm tree between Rama and Bethel in Ephraim. Now the the palm of Deborah is actually right in the same vicinity as the oak of Deborah. And you're like, wait, the oak of Deborah, palm of Deborah. There's another Deborah back in Genesis 35 whom we don't ever think about because she appears in one verse. But she's the, the, the nurse of Rebekah, whose name was Deborah, had died near Bethel and was buried under an oak below Bethel. And now this other Deborah arises by the palm of Deborah, which is between Bethel and Ramah, below Bethel. So there's her name and her location connects her back to that older Deborah, who, which sort of, as and as we see throughout the Book of Judges, uh, there are there are every, every connection is intentional, every innuendo has has meaning. So. This is, this is the sort of connection that should, should make you say, ah, oh. sort of, this, it's, a, it's a connection to, to this, this woman who obviously meant a lot to Rebecca, who, Rebecca's nurse, and who was, you know, who was named as, as being part of the, the family of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Deborah is a fascinating character in the book of Judges. She's really one of only two characters in the whole book who... Come out looking good. The other is Oatmeal. We heard about oh, part of it. Part of it is we know very little about Oatmeal, and that's why he comes out looking good. Um, there's there's been a, a, a trend um, that suggests that Deborah's calling is a rebuke to Israel. The men have fallen so far that God has to use a woman. Women should be at home with the children, not out judging Israel. But two points. One is. Where does the text say that? And the other is, the history of interpretation would not support that view. So the text says that, you know, she's a, she's a prophetess. How is that inappropriate? There are many prophetesses in the Bible. Miriam in Exodus 15, Huldah, 2 Kings 22, Anna in Luke 2, and several more in the book of Acts. In fact, uh, Joel 2 promised that in the last days, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. So prophesying is by no means an exclusively male prerogative. Paul in the book in, in, in First Corinthians will say that, that women should pray and prophesy with their heads covered, while men should pray and prophesy with their heads uncovered. So but both should be praying and prophesying. Secondly, she is judging Israel. Now, as as we've seen and as we will continue to see Judging in the book of Judges is not primarily about deciding judicial cases, but it focuses on delivering the people of God. Now, verse 5 might be the only exception. Verse 5 says she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So possibly that suggests that they're, they're bringing judicial cases to her. More likely, though, because the term judge and judging throughout the rest of the book is always talking about deliverance. 
it's more likely that Deborah is the focus of this pocket of resistance in the hill country that's be- that people are coming to the prophetess saying, we need deliverance. So they're coming to her for judgment. They're coming for- to her so that judgment will be brought against their enemies, not so much because they're trying to- she's the one who's deciding judicial cases. I mean, the, the, the way that judicial cases were handled in Israel was laid out in the, it, it, by Moses. It was supposed to be handled by the, the town elders and then by the priests. So unless we had strong evidence to suggest that these judges are doing something different, I'm inclined to say the, the judges are not primarily judges in our sense of the term judge. They are deliverers because that's what they do. So it's probably best to think of Deborah as a prophetess who has gathered around her a faithful remnant of those who refused to bow to Yabin and as one through whom the Lord spoke to his people, she is the one to whom Israel comes crying out for deliverance. So in that respect, she, she's, she is prophesying and she is the one through whom deliverance comes to God's people. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that women should pray and prophesy. Now, he also says in 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 that women should not teach or have authority over men, over a man. Let's put it, be clear about how we say that. If we're going to hold fast to biblical teaching, there, there must be a place where women may speak and a place where they may not, because Scripture says both. And rather than view Deborah as a negative example, old oh, uh, Judges suggest she's the most positive example in the book. Where does, Judge, where does Deborah speak? I mean, we hear Deborah speaking in every context except one. We, we never hear her speaking in the liturgical assembly. We never hear her seek, speaking in sort of the, the corporate worship, which would have been led by the priests, not by the judges or prophets for that matter. And... That's where throughout the scriptures, it is the, the ordained leaders who speak in the worship service. So you'll hear her speaking in, in the political assembly, and she's, she, she has some sort of role in, as, as the, in the deliverer, so, some, some sort of judgment role. Uh, Ambrose, in the 4th century, spoke of her, I, he, was, he was preaching a sermon about widows, so he, he applies her context to widows. He assumed she was a widow. That's, but that's partly a 4th century Roman context where a 4th century Roman couldn't imagine anybody other than a widow doing this. But that's where, so, but that's, again, she, Scripture doesn't say she's a widow. It says she's the wife of Lapidot. But still, so let's just, but, so when, when he says widow, just understand that's his context. I think that her judgeship has been narrated and her deeds described so that women should not be restrained from deeds of valor by the weakness of their sex. A widow, she governs the people. A widow, she leads armies. A widow, she chooses generals. A widow, she determines wars and orders triumphs. So then it is not nature which is answerable for the fault or which is liable to weakness. It is not sex, but valor which makes strong. And then Ambrose astutely points out, no fault is found in this woman, whereas most of the judges were causes of no small sins to the people. So, 
Ambrose in the fourth century, and this is this is a, this is very common in the way that Deborah is viewed throughout church history. That she's viewed as this is this is an example of a faithful woman operating in the, the, amongst the people of God. Deborah's untarnished image compares favorably with any other judge. Her faithfulness certainly contrasts with Barak's wimpiness. The text of Judges will use both innuendo and blunt force to show the failures and foibles of the judges. The only way you can find fault with Deborah is by blaming her for being a woman. Something the Bible never does. Now, it's also worth noting, so because, you know, we've seen that the, the, there are 12 judges. One of the 12 judges is a woman. So more than a, a thousand years before Jesus, God had no difficulty raising up a woman to be one of the 12 judges. So it is important to see that our Lord Jesus calls 12 men to be apostles. And we know from the Gospels there were several women who traveled with them. So to say, oh, well, it would have been culturally inappropriate to have uh, have women amongst the apostles. There were women traveling with the apostles and with Jesus. So there's nothing, I mean, they were there. And so if, if God did not appoint a woman to be amongst the 12 apostles, it, you can't, you can't make the cultural argument because a thousand years earlier, God appointed Deborah to be one of the 12 judges. Why is there a reason? What's the reason why God did not appoint a woman to be among the twelve apostles? I would suggest the only explanation I can see is that the apostles have a liturgical role among the people of God in leading in the liturgical assembly. And that was something that throughout the scriptures, God reserves to the, the ordained leaders of the church, whether the priests of the Old Testament or the apostles and ministers of word and sacrament in the New Testament. Uh, Paul will refer to himself as a, as a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God in Romans 15. So, but that's where, so really, positions that would, inc- that would involve sort of the liturgical leadership in the assembly are the, the because when you go through the, the scriptures, that's the one thing, I mean, you find women doing everything else, but the one thing they don't do is lead in the liturgical assembly. Now, what that means is we need to do better at the everything else. Because sort of that's something that you know, Deborah shows us clearly. Women should be prophesying in the life of the people of God. It's part of why we're bringing on Haley as a counseling intern. You might call her a prophetic intern. Uh, you know, applying the, the word of the Lord to the life of the people of God. Deborah clearly shows us that a woman can govern and judge there's no, there's no difficulty in having women involved in, in civic affairs, in the military life of the people of God. So you, know, you should not have any hesitation in, in voting for a woman for political office or submitting to female ma- managers in any area of life. Uh, and, and, and by the way, this is actually how most of church history has approached these things. In every generation in all of human history... <laughs> Lots of women were in positions over most men. That's because most of human history had hierarchical societies. If you were the, the wife or the widow of a, or, or for that matter, even a single daughter 
of a powerful man, then you have authority over most men in your life. If you're, if you're the duchess, then there's, there's like three men in your life, the duke, your father, and the king, who have authority over you. Every other man in your life does what you tell them to do. For that matter, if you're, if you're a serf, all the women in your life, except your, your wife and your daughters, and maybe, are over you. Every woman you meet is somebody who is in a higher social class, a higher social standing. So this is where, throughout most of human history, you, this, this is, it, it wasn't the case that there's all men and all women, because with a truly hierarchical society, these things wind up looking very different. What's, what's happened in the modern world is we've, we've uh, sort of our culture has adopted sort of this general egalitarian view, which, the, and then the church has been like, ah, but there's a problem with general egalitarianism. And so what do we come up with? We come up, we come up with what I would call patriarchal egalitarianism. The, the equality of all patriarchs so that all men are equal with each other, and then all women wind up being under, in a sense, all men, even though, well, you're just submitting to your husband, but because there's no levels in society, therefore there's no room for a woman to ever be in a position of authority over a man, even though for all of human history, which was far more qualified to be called patriarchy, in most patriarchal cultures, there's a whole lot of women who have a whole lot of authority over almost all the men in their lives. And so that's where, yeah, the, it's important to recognize that we, we need, and this is where we need to work on how do we do this well in our society. And that's where part of it is we need to acknowledge the diversity of gifts and stations. We need to recapture the language of superiors and inferiors. Some people are my superiors. Some people are my inferiors. In status, not in their... Not, you know, everybody is, you might say, equal before God and should be equal before the law. But in some respects, most people are my superiors. I mean, for instance, each of my daughters is my superior in artistic ability, among other things. And as they get older, they continue to surpass me in new ways. Recognizing the gifts and abilities of others is important. Saying so is also important. And indeed, you know, if we look, we look at Deborah, she is a prophetess. She is judging Israel. She's, they're coming to her for judgment. But she also recognizes that she's not a general. That's not, that's, that's not her gift. By the word of the Lord, she recognizes who is. Sisera's power is the 900 iron chariots of Yabin. Deborah's power is the word of the Lord. And so when Israel recognizes that God has raised up this woman to deliver them, they come to her seeking judgment against their enemies. And she responds by summoning Barak of Kadesh Naphtali. And she said to him, and, and, and notice that she puts this as a question. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? This, is, this may suggest that they've had this conversation before, and he hasn't gotten around to doing anything yet. 
go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Yabin's army, to meet you by the river Kaishan with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak is still not convinced. Now, in, in one sense, you might say, well, this puts him in good company. Moses and Gideon both hesitated and looked for signs. In fact, if, if you want to understand why Barak is looking for a sign, it's because Mount Tabor is a terrible place to go out and meet uh, the Yabin's army. Mount Tabor is a mountain that is isolated and surrounded by the plains. Once you're up on the mountain and there's 900 iron chariots down at the foot of the mountain, you're not coming down without getting slaughtered. And they're not coming up, because chariots don't go up mountains. So they're going to sit down there, and they're going to wait for you until you have to come down, and then they slaughter you. So this is a terrible battle plan, Deborah. I mean, just, just saying. They'll trample you to death and cut you in shreds. It's a suicide mission. And so... Barak was like, look, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. If you really are a prophetess of God, then come with me, because if I'm not coming back, neither are you. Now, it is curious to note, because in the book of Joshua, what did they take with them when they went up against Jericho? The Ark of the Covenant. Now, where is Deborah located between Ramah and Bethel, a little south of Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant was? Taking Deborah with you is taking the word of the Lord. She's the only prophetess in the whole book of Judges. So there's a way in which, there's a way in which sort of you're, you're wanting to take some assurance with you. But the problem is you're not actually believing the word of the Lord. And so Barak is rebuked by Deborah when she says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. The glory of this victory will come to a woman. Now, in the immediate context of the book of Judges, the implication is clear. God will rescue his people by the hand of foreigners and women. Now, so far... Whenever I've been saying foreigners, you've, you've seemed like you've been cheering. Yay! God's using Gentiles to deliver his people. And we remember the promise to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through your seed. So why should it be different when it's a woman? The tendency in some of our culture, to conservative Christian culture, to be like, oh, it's a woman. That's not what the text is saying. There's nothing here that suggests that this is a bad thing. Oh, I mean... There, there could be something of a rebuke to Barak. Oh, certainly there's that. But it's not that there's a problem with Deborah because she's doing this. There's a problem with Barak. No, I mean, no question about that. But it's not a problem with Deborah. So, finally, as Deborah goes with Barak, they raise the 10,000 troops from Zebulun and Naphtali. Here they are in the northern part of Israel. And they go to Mount Tabor. Verse 11 then sets the stage for introducing our second woman. Now, Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'ananim, which is near Kadesh. (laughs) And you're like, what's this doing here? 
this is one of those moments where the, the author of the book of Judges seems to give us a little throwaway line. Uh, they're never throwaway lines. It's here for a reason. We heard back in chapter 1 of the Kenites, Moses, from Moses, Moses' father-in-law, who had settled with Judah. Now we hear of a renegade Kenite who has gone far to the north and set himself up not far from Kadesh. He has departed from Judah and come to the hill country far in the north, far away from his people. Why is he here? We'll, we'll find out. When Sisera was told, verse 12, that Barak had gone up to Mount uh, Tabor, Sisera was like, oh, stupid idiot. Ha! He walked into a trap. There's no way he can come, come, come down that mountain. So he, grab, he takes his 900 chariots and all his men who are with him, and he goes to the river Kaishan and waits for the idiotic general to come down and get slaughtered. Now, Yabin the ancestor, or at least the predecessor of our Yabin, in Joshua 11, had fought against Israel at the waters of Merom, the waters of the heights. In 1 Samuel, we'll hear of the Canaanites saying that Yahweh was a god of the hill country, not of the plain. Earlier in Judges, we heard that Israel had trouble in the lowlands due to these iron chariots. We're seeing a pattern here. The pagans think of Yahweh as a god of the hills, but our gods will protect us in the plains. We have Israel's army trapped on a mountain. As long as they're up the mountain, their God will protect them. But when they come down, <laughs> so Israel's army is trapped on a mountain surrounded by iron chariots. When was the last time Israel was surrounded by chariots? At the Red Sea. At that time, too, a foreign king mocked the God of Israel, thinking that he did not have the power to, to deliver his people. In chapter 3, we were told that Israel, under Ehud's leadership, defeated the Moabites because the Lord gave them into their hand. And now Deborah starts the same way. Deborah said to Barak, verse 14, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? And then it says that Barak went down from Mount Tabor with his 10,000 men, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots. And it's... Not Barak's sword that routs Sisera. It's the Lord routed Sisera. How did the Lord rout Sisera? Well, the song of Deborah contains the answer. And the author of Judges thinks that you've sung that song and you know that song, so he doesn't need to tell you. But there's a hint here. Sisera thinks that fleeing on foot will be quicker than riding his chariot. That's your clue. And Barak pursues the army of Sisera and destroys it all. So Barak gets some glory. He destroys the army. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Ah, this is what Heber the Kenite's doing here. You see, Heber has not only separated himself from the Kenites in Judah, he has made peace. He's made shalom with Yabin, the king of Hazor. This is not a good sign. 
He has allied himself with the oppressor of God's people. He has turned against Israel and Israel's God. So Sisera, seeing the tent of Heber the Kenite, thinks he has found safe haven. The custom of hospitality was clear. When, when you have shalom with your neighbor, uh, as the wife of Heber, Yael must protect Sisera. And so Yael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And she covers him with a rug. She provides water. Uh, he asks for water. She gives him milk. And he asks, Stand at the opening of the tent. If any man comes and asks, Is, any, is anyone here? Say, No. This is good hospitality. This is protecting and providing for your guest. Do you remember where Heber the Kenite had moved from? Geography matters in this book. Heber and Yael came from Judah. That's where the the Kenites had settled. And Jael... You hear me, I keep changing the pronunciation. People pronounce it different ways. Yael is probably the most Hebrew pronunciation, but the thing is, when we sing it, we sing Jael, so that's fine. But here is one who is faithful to Israel's God. Rather than harbor the enemy of God's people, she violates the laws of hospitality and crushes the head of the serpent. She took peg and a hammer in her hand and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness Jael had followed her husband away from her people she had endured her husband's alliance with the enemies of Israel I mean think about what this woman had endured She believed in the Lord. She trusted the Lord. But her husband has taken her to a place where she's now in alliance with the one who is oppressing her people. No doubt she had wondered many times, what am I doing here? How am I supposed to serve my God when my husband is in rebellion against him? But as Sisera falls asleep in her tent, she realizes that God has answered her prayers. He has explained to her very clearly what she is doing here. Because if Jael is not here, then Sisera gets away. The oppressor of my people is sound asleep. And I've got one chance. She took peg and mallet to him, hammered, crushed, and pierced his head. Shamgar used an ox goad. Jael used tent peg and hammer. You can serve God with all sorts of tools. (laughs) And then she hears another man passing by. And a second time, Jael comes out of her tent to meet a man, and she meets Barak. And says, come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. As Deborah had prophesied, the glory of this victory would go to a woman. Now, it's certainly the case, and we'll hear of this later in Judges, that it was considered a a shameful thing in those days for a warrior to be killed by a woman. Warriors, especially generals, are supposed to be the strongest, most powerful men. 
And, you know, if you think about it, in hand-to-hand combat, JL versus Sisera, eh. <laughs> that's why she doesn't try hand-to-hand combat. The only way she can take down Sisera is by a subterfuge. She gains his trust and then kills him in his sleep. It's not a fair fight. Ehud tricked Eglon, king of Moab, and stabbed him. Jael tricks Sisera, puts a tent peg through his head. I realize some of the, I mean, you're like, okay, well, you know, so is this, is this saying, you know, go and do that likewise? Um, it's very rare that you'll find yourself in this position. I don't expect any of you ever to find yourself in this position. This happens very rarely in all of human history. But it could happen where you could find yourself in a position where the only way to love God faithfully and effectively would be to do this sort of thing. That's, but as you, I mean, as you can clearly see, there's, I mean, this doesn't happen very often. How often do you have an enemy general sleeping in your tent? I mean, but through various ways and at various times, God delivers his people through the hands of foreigners and women and people in strange situations. Now, next week we will see more clearly some of the things going on here, or next time in two weeks, But we should not take lightly the image here of the woman crushing the head of the seed of the serpent. The fact that the men of Israel are wimps and traitors does not diminish the faithfulness of these women. If anything, it magnifies it all the more. And we need more Deborahs and Jaels in the Church of Jesus Christ. We need prophetesses who will speak the word of the Lord to God's people, who will call people to follow Jesus. You'll notice, Deborah doesn't just speak to the women of Israel. She even speaks to the general and tells him, get out there and fight. Now, it's also important to say, prophesying throughout the scripture is not primarily about predicting the future. That's, uh, sometimes we get, there's, that, 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 that happens occasionally in the Bible, most of what prophesying is in the scriptures is speaking forth the word of the Lord, calling one another to faithfulness and following Jesus. I'll also mention that you know, this, this summer we're starting our, our servant leadership training class. And yes, this will include the, the, the men who have been nominated for deacon, but we also want to include women who want to be like Deborah, or for that matter, women who want to be like Jael. Do you want to know how to drive a tent peg into Sisera's head? Well, that's what our study of the Westminster Confession is all about. Because what is the weapon of our warfare? We, we, we don't use tent pegs in our warfare. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And how to use the word of God to faithfully cut down the enemies of God's people. How to use the word of God to faithfully build up the saints and bring the gospel of Jesus to those who are perishing. That's what we do. So if that's what you want to do, then I mean, that's something we, should, we want to have both men and women involved in doing this. So let's, let's pray. 
Lord, have mercy and be gracious to your people and help that as we walk before you as, as, your, as your servants, that we might speak forth your, your gospel, that we might speak forth your word, that we might speak forth the word of Christ to, to those who are perishing. And we pray, Father, that you would raise up Deborah's and Jael's, that, that we might have in this church and indeed throughout all churches and throughout all nations, there would be many faithful women who would proclaim Jesus and his resurrection to, to, to those around them and, and those in their communities. Lord, help us as your people and strengthen us by your spirit that we might live as those who belong to Jesus, that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus, that we might serve you in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in each place that you put us. Help us to show forth the love of Christ, the power of the gospel, and your great goodness to us that you have shown in your Son. And as we come now to this, your table, we pray that you would strengthen us, help us, and bless us by your word and spirit. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.